This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Welcome to the July episode of Radio Astronomy. In today's special episode, we'll be talking to Andrew Smith, author of Moon Dust. In the book, Andrew tracks down all nine living Apollo astronauts to interview them. I caught up with him to talk about his book. So, Andrew, you wrote uh, Moon Dust, which was where your mission to track down uh, the 12 uh, original moonwalkers, or as many of them as were still alive. Uh, how did you come to take that journey? Well, it was it was surprisingly random, actually, that I, I was um, a child living in California, I must have been about six, seven, um, when the first landing happened. And then they, they carried on in 1969, and then they carried on for three more years to the end of 1972, and then they just stopped. And like most people, I I just forgot about it, really. The, the space program just uh, withered away, really. And, um, you know, we had the, the shuttle, but that was just going up 200 miles above Earth. It was very different. And, um, and so I was just... You know that was I'd assigned that to to my past and was working for the Observer on the on Life magazine at the, the sort of end of the nineties. And there used to be a bit at the back of the magazine, that was, which was a Q and A section that that I, I used to avoid <laughs> as much as I could because it it wasn't that much fun normally because it it wasn't very creative. It was just sort of transcribing stuff and putting it into Q and A form. So, but eventually the editor kind of collared me and said, look, you really have to do one of these. It's, it's not fair leaving it to everyone else. So I looked to, looked around to see who was, who was, who was here, who was, who was about to, that I could do that for. And, and I noticed that one of the moonwalkers um, from the second last to last mission, Apollo 16, um, a man named Charlie Duke was in town in London. And, um, and I, I thought, well, that might be interesting. And then I, I further noticed that he was here with his wife and that they were, he, he had been one of a number of them who'd come back and had had a real sort of meltdown when he got back to Earth, just had not been able to assimilate back into life on Earth and had ended up, uh, you know, an alcoholic and, and um, with, you know, difficult family problems by his own describing a quite a brutal, uh, angry father and so on. And, um, and his wife, Dottie, who was a formidable woman, had sort of put them back together uh, through faith and through religion. They were living in Texas. And it had worked. I mean, it was a, an incredible act of creativity, I always think, on her part. And they were they founded a mission, and they, they were in London talking about them the missionary work. And so it was really interesting. And, and Charlie's a, a lovely man, and I love Dottie as well. And we had a really interesting conversation. It was only towards the end that they they mentioned that um, one of the other moonwalkers who commanded the, 
the second mission, Apollo 12, which was probably the most fun mission of all because the three of them on that mission really loved each other like brothers and were very close. And um, he had, it turned out that the day before our interview, Charlie and my and Dottie's interview, he'd, uh, Pete Conrad uh, had had a motorbike accident and he was expected to be fine. But while I was with Charlie and Dottie, word came through that Pete Conrad had died of his injuries unexpectedly and the pair of them were very upset and we, we stayed talking and and um because he was he was very well loved uh, pete pete conrad the neil armstrong called him the best man i ever knew in fact and only towards the end when i stayed talking to him for longer and towards the end um as i was getting to go charlie said now there's only nine of us and i didn't think so much of it at the time but i found that that sort of echoed through my mind for the next couple of years. I was thinking, well, there's only nine of them out of the original 12, which means that, you know, they're all getting older now. At some point, there won't be any. And I thought, I started to think about what you do after you've been to the moon. That was really the, the animating question for me. I mean, is the whole rest of your life going to be this massive anticlimax? And if it is, what does that say about you know, shooting for these huge, impossible projects would be better off to simply not do them and be, be satisfied with God. So all these questions were, were in my mind. And eventually I thought, well, I want to go and find them and, and ask them and see what, what have their lives been like and, and what, what did it mean going to the moon, both, both for them and for the rest of us who, who watched them do it. And Moondust was a thing. Of course, the first thing I did was call NASA thinking that you'd, you'd, you'd be able to do that. And they'd say, oh, well, you know, here they are. They are we, we've, we'll give you addresses and phone numbers for them. And, uh, and of course, what NASA said was, well, these guys haven't worked for us in 30 years. We have no idea where they are. <laughs> so the book, was, part of the book was, was track it down, finding where they were and what they, where they got to. There's some people who dedicate their entire lives to, to tracking down, not just the Apollo astronauts, but all kinds of astronauts. Um, yeah. And it can sometimes be quite tricky. So... Was it difficult to to track all all nine of them down? Yes, actually, in a word, it, it was. Um, some some of them, no, not so much, because some of them had stayed, you know, in various different ways in in public life. I think only one of them, John Young, who was on on that mission with Charlie, the second to last one, Apollo sixteen, he had stayed with NASA and flew the first space shuttle. But apart from that, I don't think any of the others were were still anything to do with NASA. And they'd had, what I found was that they'd had, some of them had had completely unexpected um, lives when they got back. They'd taken, you know, these sort of left field turns that you would never have expected. One of them, Edgar Mitchell, um, was was a kind of new age guru in Florida. He'd had what he called an epiphany on the way, on the way home. And where he'd felt like he sensed an intelligence in the, in the universe. And he spent the rest of his life. Basically, he founded an organization called the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which was about studying the study of consciousness. And he spent the rest of his life trying to work out what that feeling was and what consciousness is and, and how we are connected to the universe. Um, so it was science. It wasn't, it wasn't um, there was nothing ethereal about it in a way, but, um, but he was a really interesting man. Another one, Alan Bean, who was on that second mission where they all loved each other like brothers, uh, he became a painter and painted scenes from the moon landings uh, for the rest of his life, and was lovely. Was a lovely man and and uh, one of the most contented people I've ever met. I think. 
So they, they went all kinds of ways. Another one came back and, and um, he thought he heard God talking to him on the surface of the moon and founded a ministry and actually went searching for Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat in Turkey at one point. Julian Barnes wrote a short story about, about that. Um, and others, others didn't. Neil Armstrong sort of disappeared from view to quite a large extent. Uh, he first when became a teacher. He, he was a professor of engineering. But then he withdrew from that and... Um, and was considered to be quite reclusive, uh, which frustrated, you know, space at you have no end. So they're, they're an interesting group of people and not what you'd expect. These days, they would have all been chosen with PR in mind, of course, in the, the world that we're in now, but they really weren't at the time. Um, Buzz Aldrin's son, Andrew Aldrin, described his, uh, his fathers and actually his, his parents um, as exquisitely unprepared for what was going to come afterwards. So, uh, so yeah, so it was, um, it wasn't easy to find them all. No, I found, uh, I found one of the command module pilots again from that second mission, Apollo 12, who, and the command module pilots were up to three astronauts. The command module pilots stayed in the spaceship orbiting the moon. So it didn't go down to the surface. I found him signing autographs at the Star Trek convention for 20 bucks a pop, um, which was unexpected. So sometimes it was just turning up places, so I just turned up and I chatted with him. So when they were picking the Apollo astronauts, there was a, there was a big thing about they, they needed to have the, the right stuff. And so mm. did you find there was any sort of thing that linked them together that, that made them sort of seem particularly suited for these missions? Well, in, a, in a word, probably, uh, probably no. They were a very diverse group of people. Um, the most of them have been trained as test pilots, but not all of them. And so they were extremely skilled at, at flying. And that was the that was considered to be the most important thing to begin with. Um, but they they were they varied in temperament and type much more than I thought they would. I was expecting you know the steely commander uh, stereotype, sort of these these um, these kind of quite. Uh, sort of hard-nosed um, automata, almost, and it really wasn't like that at all. They, they, they varied in temperament a lot, and a lot of them were um, quite creative people, actually, because they were really involved in designing the equipment that they took with them to a very high degree. So, I mean, you could sort of see them as two two groups, uh, broadly speaking. They were the ones who were the, the sort of pure flyers, particularly amongst the first wave of astronauts in the Mercury 7, who just basically went up and down and then tested out the equipment going around Earth orbit. Um, so they were the first, the first people in space. Most of them were old school pilots that you kind of you kick, kick the tires, throw the scarf, and you're off. Um, but the new wave, the, for the ones who some of whom ended up going to the moon. So it would have been the third intake of astronauts and the second intake of astronauts, which included Neil Armstrong, uh, were much more analytic people. They tended to be uh, very highly educated with postgraduate degrees in engineering and science. And um, and they were they were a, a really different breed to the early astronauts. They were, they were much more um, sort of thoughtful uh, and reflective people. So that doesn't mean that they were found it easy to answer the question, 
what's it like to stand on the moon? You know, that, that was something that frustrated <laughs> most of them. And some of them, like Neil Armstrong, just never, ever answered that question. And you, you talked about how much it changed the, the astronauts to, to go through this sort of experience. Did you find at all that your, your own perception changed by talking to these men about their experience on the moon? Massively, yeah. I mean, I, there's there's probably there are probably only two or three things um, that I've written in my life that really sort of changed my outlook very profoundly, and and that was that was for sure one of them. Um, it was kind of like being in a in a in a trance for a couple of years making that book because uh, I've really got to go and immerse myself in in the time that it was happening as well, and then relating it to now as I went around to to meet them. So it was a it was a really good opportunity to reflect on life, and it, it, to my mind, the book, although there's a lot of space in it, it's it's really about life on Earth, and what do we want? You know, what should we want? Um, in terms of changing them, I think the thing that I discovered, I can't remember which of them first said it, but several of them ended up saying it without knowing that the others had, which what they, what they said was that they all came back more like they already were. So what it did was sort of focus them. And uh, and I think that that seems plausible to me. I think that's probably true. Um, for me, what it gave was, I think also what it gave the more reflective um, ones of them too, which was a, a real sense of how lucky that we are to be here and how lucky you know I am to be here and, and with the, the people I'm surrounded by and so on, because it... For the first time with Apollo, we saw the Earth against that that just oily black backdrop of space. And the one thing that they all said was the only color you could see anywhere. And the Earth really does look extraordinary from there. Um, and the environmental movement took off, you know, just after that. Some people think it was related to those those early photos, the whole Earth photos that they brought back. And the thing that, that most represents... Um, the journey that I went on and that they went on to me was Alan Bean, the one who became a painter from Apollo 12, the second mission, who said that when he came back, he used, there's a huge shopping mall in Houston where he lived called the Galleria. And he said that he used to just go and sit. That there was a little ice cream stand there. And he'd go and get an ice cream and he'd just sit for hours just watching people going back and forth and going about their business just as they normally do every day. And he'd just sit there and think, what a miracle this all is. I mean, how unlikely it all is. And and that's really the sense that I came away f- with, I think, from the whole thing. It's, um, you know, it's incredible that we're here. And now we're approaching the, the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landings. Um, you've decided to, to republish Moondust. Um, what's changed in the last 15 years since you wrote the book? Well, actually, to tons. Um, one of the things that made me interested in doing it in the first place was the fact that these these guys had all been really quite forgotten. Most, when I set out to make Mundos, so it was early 2000s, uh, Aldrin and Armstrong were, were still, you know, well-known and probably household names. But very few people could name any of the others uh, or even what they did. Quite a lot of people thought that we were still going to the moon. You know, it just had had been forgotten. And they'd all gone off and had to do other jobs. One was a, 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 was a tugboat commander for a while in the Houston Ship Canal. Um, Buzz Aldrin, a few years after, came back, was selling cars 
or you know Cadillacs in a in a car showroom uh, and so the space really was had fallen by the wayside and and NASA was still doing some amazing things it was going and sending the, the rovers to Mars and so on but human space flight into deep space um, seemed like it was just so far off on the horizon that no one was even thinking about it. And one of the things that I discovered when I was researching the book was there was actually a space underground movement. That's what they call themselves in, in the States. And actually, you know, extending to here too, but particularly in folks in the States, that was trying to agitate for government to uh, open up space so that private enterprise could go and do it because NASA wasn't doing it. And people didn't want to pay for it. Um, and that has changed out of all recognition. And unexpectedly, I would never have predicted this. And a large part of that is is to do with Elon Musk, I think. And a bunch of the tech entrepreneurs, Jeff Bezos would be another one, who were children when Apollo was happening and were disappointed by the fact that where we grew up, as I, as I did, grew up with the idea that, oh, well, of course, there'll be moon bases by the time, you know, uh, it was the age I am now, and we'll all be you know, traveling up there and back all the time and be routine, like in 2001 at Space Odyssey. And then that didn't happen. So these tech entrepreneurs started to um, started to do it themselves. And so now, all of a sudden, there's a, a huge interest in space, and there's quite a lot of activity, and there's a bunch of companies who are doing it, and NASA has been reinvigorated partly by that and partly by the fact that people are just interested in space again. So that's one thing that's changed dramatically and very unexpectedly. It's, as you said, we're, it's sort of become less of an if we go back to the moon to a, when we go back to the moon. Um, definitely in the last yeah. couple of years with people like like Trump's uh, space directive um, and the Artemis program. Uh, do you think that's a step well, in the yeah, right the direction? Thing about, <laughs> the thing about going back to the moon and, and Trump, the thing to remember is that actually when I was making Moon Dust, it was George um, W. Bush who was president, and he also announced that we were going back to the moon. And I angered quite a lot of, in Moon Dust in the book, I, I angered quite a lot of space nuts, um, or space enthusiasts, I should say. Um, I angered quite a lot of space enthusiasts by looking at the figures and seeing that actually President Bush was offering no new money and that NASA was going to have to find it and his, his um, successors were going to have to find it which you knew wasn't going to happen. So it is a, it is a thing with when presidents want to show um, some semblance of vision that they talk about going back to the moon. The difference is now that, that people are also talking about going to Mars, which is a whole other order of magnitude, you know, difficult. But it's being seriously discussed. And, and so moon, the moon, in a way, might be just a, a stepping stone to that. So that's, that's quite exciting. Mm. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today, Andrew. Yeah, it's, a, it's my pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the July episode of Radio Astronomy. To find out more about the Apollo 11 landings, you can always pick up the July issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, available in all good news agents, or pick up our special edition, The Apollo Story. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or simply head to iTunes. 